Back in the olden days of TV regionalisation, a channel surfing kid could pretty much be guaranteed to find some old, long-forgotten gems propping up the afternoon or late-night TV schedules. This could consist of anything from old science fiction classics like The Day the Earth Caught Fire or This Island Earth, to reruns of equally forgotten short-lived TV shows such as Otherworld or the TV version of Logan's Run. With TV becoming more focused on a key demographic, this has largely fallen by the wayside, so it's nice to see the UK Horror Channel has picked up the slack. Whilst the primetime schedules are stripped with daily reruns of Hercules, Highlander and Land of the Giants, and the evening filled with schlocky low-budget gore-fests, the afternoons have been a veritable goldmine for viewers like me, who like a helping of cheese in their viewing. Imagine my delight when propping up the schedules less than a week apart at the beginning of October were two absolutely magnificent examples of this kind of random schedule filler. The 1979 Captain America pilot film and the Hasselhoff-tastic reunion movie Knight Rider 2000. In addition, the Horror Channel has already began a rerun of Irwin Allen's Land of the Giants, as mentioned earlier, which I managed to catch the first episode of. Captain America was part of Universal Television's purchase of a number of Marvel properties in the late 70s. That, alongside Cap, included Doctor Strange, Spider-Man and the Incredible Hulk. Of that lot, only Spider-Man and the Hulk would go to series, with only the Hulk having any kind of lasting impact. I don't recall this Cap movie ever being shown in my neck of the woods, so this was a pleasant surprise. Until I actually watched it. Produced by Alan Bolter, directed by Rod Holcomb and written by Don Ingalls, Captain America starred Reb Brown as Steve Rogers. Holcomb had directed pretty much every major television show of the 1970s, including Quincy Emmy, The Six Million Dollar Man, Battlestar Galactica and Fantasy Island. He would carry this streak on into the 80s and 90s, directing such hits as The A-Team, Lost, China Beach, The Equaliser, Hill Street Blues, The West Wing and Numbers. In 2009, he won the Primetime Emmy Award for Outstanding Directing of a Drama Series for the series finale of ER. Ingalls primarily wrote for westerns, but had a couple of Star Trek episodes under his belt, and Baltar was better known for betraying the human race to the Cylons. I tell you all of this to establish that they all clearly should have known better, something that perhaps can't be said of lead actor Reb Brown. Brown had the height, build and looks to be an almost perfect Steve Rogers, but seems to have spent his career popping up in various roles in episodic television, with these two cap telefilms being his largest claim to fame. Of the rest of the cast, only Heather Menzies, who was in the TV version of Logan's Room and the always welcome Lance Legault, stood out. I immediately knew that this telefilm was going to be interesting watching the opening scene. Steve Rogers, referred to as Steve-O by his surfer dude friend, is recast here as an ex-marine, ex-motocross surf bum, who is about to spend the next few years of his life cruising around in his pre-mellow set of wheels and generally just kicking back. Steve is visiting his surfer chum to pick up his mail and, with both men sporting magnificent 70s locks, shirts far too tight for them, and a glorious soundtrack of porn music coming from the stereo, I half expected Steve to say he was here to fix the photocopier. But only three minutes in, and I'm thinking that this movie would work better with alcohol. 
As per the comics of the time, Steve is an artist and he gifts his friend with a landscape in return for allowing him to have his mail directed here. He's had a lot of mail, mostly from somebody called Stephen Wells, but Steve ignores all of them in favour of a call from Jeff Hayden, who seems to have important news for Steve that can't be explained over the phone. And thus, a major plot point cometh. See, Steve is being followed by Lance Legault, and as all viewers of bad 70s and 80s TV will tell you, nothing good ever came of that. The score then turns from 70s porn to 80s action, as Mike Post and Pete Carpenter wheel out the drums and guitars. A tanker truck cakes about five miles of bad road with oil, presumably completely oblivious to the fuel crisis of the 1970s. Steve skids off the road, trashing his mellow set of wheels. Bummer. Brown conveys this sudden and unexpected accident with all of the thespian skill at his command, i.e. he looks mildly irritated, as if a wasp has just flew about his head. Recovering quickly and not bothering to wait around for the police, Rogers drops by Dr Mills, where he's told his father invented a serum called Flag. Talk about signposting it. This is abbreviated from Full Latent Ability Gain, which is apparently a fancy steroid. Steve has the best line of the show here, telling Mills... I'm not following you. Mills then explains it in words of one syllable, showing Steve rats that can run at the equivalent of 57 miles per hour, as well as pull heavy rocks. He also mentions that the serum was derived from Steve's dad's DNA, and as he was the only man the serum ever worked on, maybe Steve would be up for a little experimentation. No, not that kind of experimentation, because Steve still doesn't twig that maybe, as he has the same DNA as his dad, it'll work on him as well. So it's up to the pretty female scientist, the aforementioned Heather Menzies, who plays a character wonderfully named Wendy Day, to convince him otherwise. Steve says he's not interested. He just wants to kick back from duty and honour and be a lazy bum for a while. So instead, Steve visits Jeff, who he finds dying on the floor of his house. He manages to get the words, Catherine, Steve, and please, out of his mouth before he dies. Steve this time does call the cops, and it's hugely convenient for the plot that Mills is also involved with Hayden. Brown is absolutely terrible in these early scenes. There's a wonderful and or horrible moment, depending on your viewpoint, where Brown says the first part of his line, pauses, looks at the floor to see where his mark is, steps over to his mark, and then finishes saying the line. Of course, if you're surprised to learn that Legault is behind Hayden's death, then you've not been paying attention. Legault works for an oil company executive who's after some film Hayden shot. The search of Hayden's apartment did not yield the results they required, because if it had, the story would be over. It turns out they need the film to make a massive bomb. Some might say that by making this movie, they succeeded. Legault calls Rogers, and Rogers agrees to meet Legault at some shady gas station. Why he would do this, rather than telling the cops that a man who claims to know something about a recent murder just called him and arranged a meeting, remains unexplained. Mike Post and Pete Carpenter then wheel out a score achingly familiar to 80s TV viewers, and the reason that we were signposted earlier that Rogers is an ex-motocross rider becomes apparent, as we get five minutes of interminable motorcycle footage. This devolves into an insipid car and motorcycle chase where Rogers careens off the road and, for no reason whatsoever, the bike explodes into flames. 
Steve is rushed to hospital, a man barely alive, and Universal raids the stock footage library for footage of the $6 million man surgery, as if the similarities to that project weren't already apparent. Steve is injected with the flag serum as, shock upon shock, this is all that they can do to save his life. And, as if by magic, Rogers wakes up better than he was before. Better. Stronger. Faster. Except Steve isn't best pleased by what Mills has done, and has a petulant strop about the formula maybe killing him, and him not knowing how long he has to live. Ignoring the fact that none of us know how long we have to live, this telemovie seems to have decided that the best way to adapt the Captain America comic books is to chuck everything that was good about the comics out of the window and remake the Six Million Dollar Man. This is even more evident in the next scene. The Galt kidnaps Rogers, now clad in a stylish turtleneck and tank top ensemble, and beats him up in a meat packing factory. At no point does Legault realise he's barking up the wrong tree. Rogers doesn't come across as a bright guy at the best of times, and he really genuinely doesn't know what the hell's going on. But now Steve's good and mad, and he busts his bonds with a six mil style sound effects and, and starts chucking Legault and his men around the meat room. He pushes large slabs of meat at them, rendering them unconscious, and hangs them up on the hooks before leaving them for the police. This is a risible action scene that is every bit as bad as I'm describing it. It's badly paced, it's ineptly choreographed, it's got terrible music, and sound effects that desperately want to be the $6 million man. It does score, however, by being at least unintentionally funny. Sadly, the rest of the film can't even rise to that level. Rogers then meets up with Mills, and Mills, pulling his best Oscar Goldman routine, tries to get Steve to work with them on his dad's project, mockingly named Captain America, by his father's detractors. Steve doodles a costume for no real reason, as he doesn't quite agree to work with Mills, but he doesn't agree to not work with him either. Here's the crux of the problem with Steve's characterisation in this telefilm. Everything he's doing here is for his dead dad. He's got no motivation or character of his own. Rather, he's walking in the footsteps of another man, a man we, the audience, have never met, and therefore I don't care about. Had the story been set up in such a way that it opened with Steve working with his dad on the flag serum, and then having his dad be killed instead of Hayden, this could have worked. As it is, it's just lazy writing to rely on all of our connections with our own fathers to try and give this some kind of emotional weight. Anyway, Mills gives Steve a motorbike, the movie's only lasting contribution to Cap Law, and Cap's famous shield, which is transparent for some reason. Steve then drives the bike around for what feels like 20 minutes of screen time. A helicopter attacks, and there's another 20 minutes of Steve avoiding the bullets. There's inadvertently a good stunt here, or at least I presume it's inadvertent, because nothing in this production has been good so far, so this has to have been an accident. Steve manages to find a ramp in the middle of the beach. The production makes no effort to hide the ramp, or explain it, so I'll assume it's there for a reason. And he rides up it, jumps off the bike, catches a hold of the helicopter landing ski as the bike hits the floor. In addition to being a pretty impressive stunt, it's amusing to note that not only does Steve's bike look like the flying motorcycles of Galactica 1980 fame, but the sound effect it makes when it accelerates is the same as the Vipers. The plot meanders on like a lame tortoise. The bad guys find the film and kidnap Hayden's daughter and Heather Menzies. But it's all going to be okay because Mills has made the Captain America outfit that Steve sketched earlier. Ostensibly so Steve won't be remembered. Not that Steve won't be recognised. No, no, that would be too simple of the listener. Won't be remembered. Logic? 
let me introduce you to this window. Steve dons the costume, which bears only a passing similarity to the comics costume, but it's still the same colour scheme and basic design, so I'm having trouble wrapping my head around why they actually changed it. Here, the stripes run up the left and right-hand side of his torso, rather than around the midsection, and the mask is a motorcycle helmet. He looks more like Evil Knievel than Captain America. After another five minutes of Chips-inspired motorcycle footage, Cap takes the fight to the bad guys, who are so dull since Lance the Go was arrested, I've forgotten who they are and what they're up to. He runs around an oil plant, jumping up and down like a cut-priced bionic woman, laughing and giggling as he engages in some comedy slapstick with the guards involving oil and slippage, and then he tries to threaten some poor lab guy into revealing where the MacGuffin is. I say tries, as Brown has such a weak voice he sounds like Mickey Mouse on Helium. Lab tech boy tells Cap that the bad guys have escaped with a bomb. Yeah, there's this whole deal about a bomb that really carries no threat level despite the supposed stakes. What follows is another lengthy scene, this time of a helicopter flying. This is followed by yet another scene of Cap riding his bike. I swear if you trimmed these scenes, this film would be half an hour shorter and far more tolerable. After a boring climax, Steve finally gets his comics costume in the last 30 seconds of the film, and there's not even a hero shot. It's not worth the wait, really. This is a terrible film. There are a few scenes on a beach where Heather Menz's cleavage steals the scene, mixed in with interminable helicopter and motorcycle footage, and moments of people in cars watching other people in cars. There's a small nugget of interesting characterisation throughout the entire picture. The idea that Mills also fancies Heather Menz's character, and this could have caused some friction between he and Steve, but other than that, this is as bland as vanilla ice cream and nowhere near as tasty. There are precious few action scenes, and what there are are ripped off from The Six Million Dollar Man, The Bionic Woman and Wonder Woman, without any of the charm and self-awareness of the latter two, or any of the charisma of the former. It's languidly paced, ineptly edited, blandly acted, and as boring as a Brian Singer film. It feels far longer than 90 minutes, easily outstaying its welcome by a good 20 minutes, and possessing nothing even remotely original or interesting. It's a mishmash of other, far better shows with absolutely nothing going for it. I couldn't even find a clip to show with you all because it was all just so dull. Even the post-Carpenter score isn't worth mentioning. I can't help but think we dodged a bullet here when this didn't go to series, although it was popular enough to spawn a sequel telefilm. I do urge you to go and track this down, though. We have become so used to comic book-inspired TV and film nowadays that I do feel we've become a little complacent and take how good this stuff is now for granted. Nothing that has been produced in the past decade is as bad as this. And we need to remember that, at one point, this was all we had. Knight Rider 2000, as the title suggests, was a reunion movie for the popular 80s action fest Knight Rider and the first such attempt to get the show resurrected. Despite its title, Knight Rider 2000 was actually shot in 1991, a mere six years after the show was cancelled. In addition to being a reunion, the movie was also a potential pilot for a new series with an all-new cast. Resurrected from the old show, David Hasselhoff, Edward Mulher and William Daniels all returned to their original roles as Michael Knight, Devon Miles and Kit respectively. Although don't get the idea that you're going to see Kit in all its sleek black 1982 Trans Am magnificence. Apart from a brief glimpse in the show's opening title sequence and some flashbacks later, Kit here is a bright red 1991 Dodge Stealth, which looks nice and futuristic, but isn't quite as cool. 
Jan Hammer of Miami Vice fame provides the score and immediately gets the show off on the wrong foot. A lot of these reunion movies forget that the score of a piece must capture the mood, and when one is following an established show, using as many recognisable motifs and music cues as possible is recommended. One of the worst things about the return of the Six Million Dollar Man and the Bionic Woman was the lack of recognisable elements to the soundscape. Knight Rider had a very recognisable sound, and not using that was a misstep. Taking place in the then-future of February 2000, the teleplay was written by Rob Hedden, who I had never heard of, but apparently worked on the Friday the 13th movies, and it was directed by Alan J. Levi, who I had heard of. Levi directed every major American TV show of the 70s and 80s, although oddly not Knight Rider. In this future, all handguns have been banned and the police now use ultrasound weapons. When they catch bad guys, they are frozen with cryogenics and let loose when their sentence is up. This seems rather silly to me, especially when they explain later on in the movie that they come out of stasis the same age they went in. That doesn't really seem like punishment. We're quickly in the midst of crime, where the Murray's is offed by a good cop turned bad, Mitch Pelleggi, who is in possession of a proper gun despite the ban. Absolutely no political subtext here at all. Newly promoted street cop Sean McCormick, played by Susan Norman, is caught in the crossfire, but doesn't manage to prevent Pelleggi getting away. She recognised his gun as a former police firearm that should have been destroyed. This is a remarkably violent opener for Knight Rider. I mean, it's not Sam Peckinpah or anything, but there are blood squibs going off and somebody's killed by a handgun at very close range. Knight Rider was largely a bloodless show with problems tending to be solved without the use of gunplay, for the most part. Violence was normally of the standard fistfight variety and mostly it was car chases and outrageous stunts. We then cut to a meeting of the Knight Foundation, still headed by Devon Miles. Using this tragedy as a springboard, the Knight Foundation pitches a new state-of-the-art supercar, the Knight 4000, to the city government, which now seems to be Seattle. The Knight 4000 is an upgrade on the Knight 2000 seen in the series, but I wasn't really clear on what they need the government for. Devon and his new head of operations, Russell Maddock, played by Carmen Argenziano, seem to be aiming to sell it to protect the Mur or other officials, and as such need some funding. But in the series, Kit was a purely philanthropic device created independently by Wilton Knight, and therefore not beholden to any particular government or political allegiance. Anyway, Maddock spouts all this exposition, bringing us up to speed, and generally loops the authorities the wrong way. He uses the death of the Mur to speed up the development of the Knight 4000. This puts Devon in a bit of a bind, as the car isn't going to be ready for another three months, let alone the 30 days that they've been given. Realising that they need help, Devon goes to find Michael Knight, who is living out in the woods all by himself. Hasselhoff has said he used the episode of Knight Rider featuring Stevie, Michael's wife who was killed, as the jumping-off point for his portrayal in this movie, and knowing that, one can see that Hasselhoff has modulated his performance. He's a lot more low-key than usual. Now, I'm not a Hasselhoff hater. I think the guy has chops he never tapped into, simply because he chose to market the Hoff as a brand rather than concentrate on David Hasselhoff, the actor. But he's had a remarkable career, turning things that would have ruined a lesser man into advantages. Michael agrees to come back if he can use Kit, but Maddox trashed the Knight 2000 and sold the parts. Michael and Devon are not impressed. Maddox is actually a good character. He's abrasive and short-tempered, and this kind of person was needed in the chummy-chummy world of Knight Rider. Some conflict never goes amiss. The main problem here, though, is that the parts seen on the desk are clearly not Kit or Trans Am parts, especially the steering wheel, which is here seen to be a standard round wheel, as opposed to the butterfly wheel Kit had. 
Michael manages to locate the Burr essentials of Kit's CPU, although some are still missing. He uses what he has to bring Kit's voice modulator back online. Whilst this scene could really have done with an appearance from Bonnie Barstow, I really got a kick out of this. Seeing that funny little red voice thing jumping up and down as William Daniels spoke really took me back to childhood. Kit seems a little snarkier than usual, but being destroyed will do that to you. Hasselhoff also has a good rapport with Mulher, and for a moment or two, this film manages to capture the feel of the show, which puts it ahead of an awful lot of other reunion movies. Of course, we have the Sean McCormack plot to deal with as well, which so far has been completely independent of Michael's plot. She tries to locate Mitch Pileggi, which she succeeds in doing, but is betrayed by her friend on the force, and she learns that the police are planning on re-arming the criminals to get the law about firearms repealed. Pileggi shoots her in the head, echoes of the original pilot movie, and leaves her for dead. She rushes to hospital where it is revealed that she has lost her recent memories, but she can be saved by the implantation of a chip into her brain. The police decide to decline the expensive operation, but the doctor goes ahead with it anyway. After Sean wakes up and learns what happened, she quits and applies for a job with the Knight Industries, impressing Devon with her moxie. She's even more amazed when she learns she has one of Kit's missing chips in her head. Meanwhile, Michael has transplanted Kit into his 57 Chevy, which leads to a remarkable scene where, in a case of mistaken identity, Kit stuns actor James Doohan, thinking he's a crook. Of all the random places a Star Trek actor has turned up, this must surely be the weirdest. Kit tries to bond with the Knight 4000, but it's a snotty, ego-driven machine that Kit attributes to his voice being that of Maddox. At this point, the plot starts coming together, and give yourself a pat on the back if you figured out Kit's chip in McCormick's head would mean that she and Kit are connected, and he managed to access her memories displaying them on his monitor. This isn't the only implausible thing Kit does in this film, as later on he downloads a police patrol car's criminal database through a set of jump leads. The daft moments keep on coming. Kit, in Chevy mode, is turned into a submarine. Yeah, this remarkably silly moment is offset by the fact that Kit did this to save Michael and McCormick's life, and he sacrificed his own for his friend. It's actually really touching for those of us that grew up with the show. This isn't the only surprising and touching moment in the film, as the producers actually have the balls to kill off Devon Miles. Using clips from the original pilot movie to emphasise Devon's death really works, and Mulher plays his death scene with dignity. I even choked up a bit, and this movie suddenly won me over. There's a respect here for the original material, normally missing from reunion movies, and definitely missing from the Captain America telefilm, that I really wouldn't have credited this film for having. Let's be brutally honest, Knight Rider is a silly concept, and one not always handled particularly well in the original series, where the humour could be corny and the plot's painfully predictable. But here, we have a textbook example of how to take an off-kilter concept, treat it well, and darken it up for the future. Stupid as it sounds, modern Hollywood could learn something from Knight Rider 2000. Devon's death even sends Michael spiralling into an alcohol fueled depression that actually works with what we know about him from the original show. Michael Knight always wore his heart on his sleeve and took defeat hard. Knight Rider, being an 80s Glenn Larson show, though, never really delved into his character in any great way, so this can be read as Michael's Kobayashi Maru, a situation he's only faced once before when he lost his wife. And if Hasselhoff's reading of it is the right one, then Michael quit and walked away. 
This time, though, he doesn't. Instead, he installs Kit's memory into the Knight 4000, overwriting Maddox's AI with the original. The Knight 4000 has a ton of new gadgets, including VR, because 90s, submersible mode and infrared, although nobody seems to have a cell phone. Kit, Michael and McCormick's investigations lead them to learn that the new Mur is in on it, and the Knight Foundation works with the government to bring down Mitch Pileggi and the corrupt cops. Sadly, there's not a lot of screen time for the Knight 4000, with the movie concluding in a fistfight between Pileggi and Michael, which is another massive misstep. This should have concluded with scenes of the Knight 4000 doing cool stuff. We don't even get a turbo boost. All told, though, Knight Rider 2000 was a massive surprise. Performances are pretty good across the board, with Hasselhoff toning it down for the most part, and Pileggi making a really scuzzy villain. Callbacks to the series are integrated well, and this concludes by setting up Kit, McCormick and Maddox as the lead characters for a new series of adventures. Sadly, despite excellent ratings, this was never followed up on, which is a real shame as I'd have watched this series. Susan Norman seems to have quit acting altogether. Other than cameos in Big Bang Theory or The Simpsons or a series of commercials, this was the last time William Daniels and David Hasselhoff played Michael and Kit in any serious manner, even though Hasselhoff would cameo in the otherwise doer Knight Rider sequel in 2008. Interestingly, despite all the times they've tried to bring Knight Rider back, through another TV movie, Knight Rider 2010, and two more series, the aforementioned 2008 sequel and Team Knight Rider in the mid-90s, they never tried to reboot the series with each iteration, working within the framework of the original. Given the failure of every version that hasn't featured Hasselhoff and Daniels, maybe these two are irreplaceable. The other thing I found propping up the Horror Channel schedule was Erwin Allen's Land of the Giants. The cast is a largely bland group of not very famous actors and a few, it's that guy, and borrows heavily from Allen's Lost in Space. The episode I caught was the first one, set on June 12th, 1983 and entitled The Crash. In it, our stalwart collection of cardboard cutouts and the really rather stunning Deanna Lund, the only member of the cast that stuck out to me, are headed for London when they run across a mysterious storm. Upon landing, they are nearly crushed by a massive car, and the ship is picked up by, you guessed it, a giant. Written by Anthony Wilson from a story by Alan and directed by Alan, Land of the Giants is exactly what it purports to be. A high-concept science fiction show, high on spectacles, short on characterisation. The captain is stalwart and true, as is his first officer. There's a capitalist banker, a kid, and two women who look good in tight tops. Again, Deanna Lund sticks out in this regard. There's also a filthy foreigner named Fitzhugh who's up to no good because he's a foreigner. There are giant lizards and giant cats and giant spiders and giant dogs and they may not even be giants. Our corrugated heroes may be really small. Who knows? The real terror comes when the funny foreign man and the cute kid are attacked by a cat because, as we all know, cats are inherently terrifying. They run back to their plane and make it on board just as our feline terror swipes at the ship, leading to some truly bad rock-the-boat acting from the crew. It makes you appreciate just how good the Star Trek cast were at this. Whilst the crew of the plane, which seems to be called the Spindrift, but is pronounced more like Spendthrift, have problems with their pussy, the captain and Deanna Lund, she of the well-fitted top, get caught in a rat trap, which Captain Cardboard tells Lund not to enter, but follows her regardless when she ignores him and goes in anyway. I'm getting the impression that Captain Cardboard may have bought his captaincy. 
They are taken to a lab and from here on in it's a lot of running and chasing and very little explanation or momentum. Sure it all looks good, especially for the time with the props and SFX presumably costing a pretty penny back in 1968, but it's sadly a bit dull. I remember liking this show as a kid, but its lethargic pacing and insistence on lingering on the oversized props makes for pretty tedious viewing. Also, there's no plot. Pilots are hard. They have to set up the show, introduce the characters and the series premise, and tell a story in its own right. But the Land of the Giants pilot seems to just forget the latter part of that equation. It sets up the show, it introduces the characters, largely by not having them have any actual character. But once this is done, Alan forgets to tell a story. He assumes the premise and effects will be enough to hook the viewer. But it's not. Land of the Giants is a good idea in search of decent actors and a plot. Finally for this episode, something that wasn't on the Horror Channel but actually launched on BBC3 was Class, the latest spin-off from Doctor Who. Launched to reviews that couldn't fail to compare it to Buffy the Vampire Slayer, for comparisons it has to be said, Class is created and written by Patrick Ness and is set in Coal Hill Academy. Cole Hill used to be a high school and has a long association with Doctor Who, with this being the school the Doctor's granddaughter Susan attended in the very first episode of the show back in 1963. It's where the seventh Doctor stored the Hand of Omega in the 80s story Remembrance of the Daleks, and where the 13th Doctor got a job as a caretaker in the imaginatively titled The Caretaker. It was also where Clara Oswald and Danny Pink taught English and maths respectively. Class has been rather weird in that publicity for it seems to have been quite low-key, with it launching on the BBC's digital-only channel, BBC Three. Scheduled to run for eight episodes, and presumably the reason we didn't get any new Doctor Who this year, the first episode of Class was actually fun and horrific in equal measure. The standout member of the cast was Catherine Kelly as teacher Mrs Quill, aptly named as she's extremely prickly, but this could be because I have long passed the age where teenage melodrama is interesting to me. Kelly, all snark and barked orders as a breath of fresh air, in a cast largely made up of young pretty things. Which is not to say class isn't entertaining. It works quite well as a decent entry into the young adult field, which is clearly the audience the show is aiming for. All the young cast excel in their roles, with Sophie Hopkins showing the most promise as April McLean. Gore is quite prevalent, which was a surprise, and it's moderately representative of life in 21st century London, although it does run the risk of turning into an after-school special. The best moment in the first episode, though, is an appearance by the Doctor himself, giving Peter Capaldi a chance to show how much we've all missed him. This kind of backfired as I wanted to watch more Doctor Who rather than more class, but again, I'm not the target audience for this. Crossing Stephen Moffat's rather excellent press gang with Buffy isn't the worst idea for a show, and we do have to acknowledge that there is an audience of kids who've never seen Buffy, so linking this to The Vampire Diaries or Once Upon a Time, as the self-aware dialogue does, may be a smart move. Class has high production values and an interesting cast, so I'm in for the eight-episode run, especially as there's no new who until Christmas. For those interested, Class will err on BBC One after its initial launch on BBC Three, and in foreign territories will be seen on BBC America in the USA, Space in Canada, and ABC Two in Australia. After these brief messages from somebody who sponsors the show, i.e. an advert that I've just dropped in for the sake of dropping it in because I don't actually get paid sponsorship, I'll be right back with some email messages. Oh, adolescence. 
this generation have no respect and are a far cry from my sweet Jane Eyre and her friend Helen Burns. Why, just this afternoon I was Stella. walking across, and and you know what, men too. Well, uh, uh, Stella. Men like the tragic Mr. Rochester and teachers, pa. They're all like the villainous Mr. Brocklehurst. Hey, Stella! Uh, yes, Thomas? As much as I enjoy, um, indulging your insanity, we have a promo to record. Oh dear, and what might that be? That is you and I telling everyone that we have a brand new podcast out there. It's called Required Reading with Tom and Stella. Once a month, we will take a look at a single work of literature, discuss it, analyze it, and determine if it's worth its place in the canon. Oh dear, that sounds delightful. Oh, I'm sure it will be. And you can find us on the Two True Freaks Network, which is at twotruefreaks.com. Oh yes, required reading with Tom and... Why is it Tom and Stella? Why can't it be Stella and Tom? It rolls off the tongue better? Okay. Well, that was easy. So, required reading with Tom and Stella at twotruefreaks.com. Thanks for contributing to the promo there. You did a great job. Oh, you are so welcome. And we're back. One piece of email tonight. The wolf is at the door from Chris Franklin. Hello, Chris. Always nice to hear from Chris, especially when he's the only person who emails in. Hello, Andy. I have to admit, I'm not much of an Erwolf fan. Well, we have nothing to talk about, Chris. Nah, I'm only kidding. I watched it as a kid, off and on, but never followed it very closely. Having said that, every time you talk about it, or hum its theme on the Fantastic Cast, I'm intrigued, and I listen. And I listened here, and I enjoyed the show. Not sure what that says about Erwolf, but it says loads about you. Aw, thanks, Chris. Forget what I just said. Best buds again. I will argue one point. Erwolf isn't the greatest TV vehicle. Batmobile, anyone? Chris. Better than the Batmobile? The Batmobile couldn't do more than 33 miles an hour. You can't catch anyone in that. I mean, it looked good, I'll grant you that. But it didn't have any power under the hood, man. Sorry. Erwolf still wins. My show, my rules. And that's it. That's it for emails. I've not got any more. Um, I suppose what I should do is start looking at the Facebook thing and seeing what people said shouldn't it in fact let's have a look at that let's see did anybody say anything okay if we look at the facebook thing i made gene Hendricks watch the pilot which is fun ben rush complained that street art was forgotten again i watched the street art pilot not long ago ben it wasn't at all bad um aaron henley talked about the knight rider and Erwolf comic books from lion forge which i didn't know existed uh matt evans uh, wrote how I loved Erwolf as a nipper. Must admit, I remember virtually nothing about it apart from the theme tune and opening credits. See also other 80s favourites like Street Heart, Blue Thunder, Automan, Manimal, Knight Rider, The Fall Guy, etc. Still, this was compelling listening. Really interesting to hear about behind the scenes shenanigans influencing the direction of the show, for good or mainly, it seems, ill. And I'm almost tempted to check out Canadian Erwolf, to which I told Matt to not watch. Canadian Airwolf. Robert McDonald said that the Canadian Airwolf was only interesting because Geraint Wynne Davis, who was a vampire cop on Forever Night, and Michelle Scarabelli, who was Data's girlfriend on Star Trek The Next Generation, were, uh, were part of the main cast. 
uh, Scarabelli was also Susan Francisco in Alien Nation. Thank you to those people who commented on Facebook and thank you to Chris for emailing in. It was very much appreciated. We'll knock this one on the head. Uh, again, if you want to go by 2TreeFreaks.com, buy stuff from Amazon through the Amazon link. You don't pay any extra, but we get a kickback. And the Palace of Glittering Delights is a 2 True Freaks presentation. See you soon. Bye-bye.